Hello, welcome again to Sport Unlocked. At the end of a week that saw a very public, almost angry resignation statement from UEFA's Chief Football Officer Zvonimir Boban going against the President Alexander Shefrin. Just what does it all mean? We'll get into that later. As joining me, Rob Harris from Sky News as ever, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times for what is effectively a replay after being disrupted by some breaking news on Friday. Yeah, we were all ready to go and suddenly news broke of Mr Jurgen Klopp announcing his departure from Liverpool after nine years, which um, meant everybody basically had to go and do something else, um, especially you, Rob. I suddenly <laughs> discovered that you were on air with me at the same time <laughs> for one of my hits. Yeah, that was a bit funny. I got uh, uh, one of the Sky News journalists or researcher, producer, um, called me and said, would you, would you go on and talk about Klopp at uh, short notice? I said, yes. <laughs> of course, I was on the programme talking with you about it. So uh, perhaps we could have got Tarek on as well. You, you're yeah. occupied with Paddle? <laughs> a busy afternoon. I think Martin as well, I think. We had a we had a, a lunchtime date, two ends of the country. But um, no, I think, um, yeah, if Liverpool do want to apologise for the timing of their announcement, Rob will read out ways of contacting. Sportsunlockpod at gmail.com or at Sportsunlocked on X, Facebook and Instagram. In fact, anyone can message us on there, not just Liverpool. But something that was pretty surprising for this story, not just the announcement, was the fact, unlike most stories, there was absolutely no leak at all. No other journalist had this exclusively. There wasn't a hint anywhere that this was coming but Rob you mentioned there have been some other resignations this week yeah absolutely yeah from Barcelona too announcing uh, Xavi announcing his plans to leave at the end of the season although you'd think things perhaps are a bit more stable at Liverpool than uh, Barcelona yeah for sure I think I mean the clock one was obviously you know we're not a sort of pure football thing but um I think that was a, a big surprise to everybody. In terms of the scale of the story, it's kind of enormous, isn't it? If you think about where Liverpool were before Jurgen Klopp came, the um, the impact he's had, not just on the players on the pitch, but the entire club. It's an enormous um, job he's done. And from our, you know, from our perspective as a pod, we kind of talk about businesses and, and, and sports governance and all these things. It's a massive job for... Liverpool and the owners of Liverpool now to stabilise and move on, having someone so all-encompassing inside Liverpool from a business perspective as well. A lot of it sort of has hung on Jurgen Klopp and how he's made that club in his image. Because you can forget the challenges that the Liverpool owners had after they took control in 2010 from George Gillette and Tom Hicks. They were full of all the debt. It was an enforced sale by RBS at the time of the global financial crisis and that debt they couldn't refinance went through the courts in the end the uh, the sale and then it ended up with John Henry and Fenway Sports Group they inherited Roy Hodgson then they went on to Kenny Dalglish for his return then to Brendan Rodgers and still couldn't make the Champions League clock took them back in there then in 2022 if we remember just before Manchester United announced their search for new ownership Liverpool also announced plans to try to bring in fresh investment and then they had to abandon those plans. That was probably slightly scuppered, actually, by Manchester United doing that because you, you might have thought some of the, the the parties who were interested in, in Liverpool actually then switched focus to Manchester United just because of the sort of commercial possibilities, maybe. I don't know. And Xavi, 
Barcelona, his exit at the end of the season. Uh, Barcelona, they're always looking for new financing, aren't they? They are. They're, look, Xavi came in um, under Juan Laporta, the, the new president, uh, a couple of years mm. ago. Barcelona have been in a financial crisis for years. We've documented quite a lot of that on here. They've sold long-term TV rights, um, other parts of the club in order to try and stabilize their finances, which to, 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 looking at it, it looks like they, they remain in disarray. Now they're looking for a new coach. Funny enough, Xavi was the choice of a guy called Victor Font, one of the challenges to Laporta. But then when Laporta came in, he needed that kind of stardust and the old link to Barcelona's success and in came Xavi from Qatar. Barcelona still backers of A22 and the Super League. And I'm sure we'll touch on that when we discuss all the issues at UEFA later on. Also, there's uh, some discussion over uh, transgender eligibility challenges in both golf and swimming. We'll also get on to the fate of the FIFA cases in the US. Some surprising news there. And there's an update on the 2026 World Cup host cities. There is a World Cup sooner in the US. That's the Men's 2020 World Cup in June. It's going to be co-hosted with the West Indies. But cricket, we're touching it less on the pod. It's not all about the new format, though. This perhaps has been one of the most incredible days ever, as we record, for for Test cricket. Uh, everyone, everyone says that Test cricket has had its last right, doomed. It's all going to T20, no more Test matches, which, you know, if you're into cricket, is incredible. And we've had this weekend on the same day uh, two of the greatest results in history in the context of the games. You've got West, you've got West Indies who haven't won, hadn't won a game in Australia for nearly two decades, more than two decades, pulling off an eight-run win. And, you know, it's, again, a very close game, five days and it's eight runs. And then a few hours later, England, depleted England, have beaten India just against all the odds. You had um, one of the best innings of any England batsman, I would argue, on a tour anywhere, in Ollie Pope, 196. And then you have a debutant in, in the in the off spinner, Tom Hartley, getting seven wickets and beating India in India. I think only three teams have done that in the last nearly 50 games. It's what an incredible day. India apparently never lost a test match at home when they've been leading by more than 100 runs after the first innings. So that was pretty astonishing. And if that wasn't newsworthy enough at this test, the series began actually with England missing a player because Shoaib Bashir was due to be in the squad. but didn't get a visa. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy around this. I think he got as far as the United Arab Emirates, Somerset off spinner, um, and found he couldn't get there. And I think a lot of people think this is because of his Pakistani heritage um, that created visa problems. And he's probably not the first person that that's happened to, I think. He definitely isn't the first person that's happened to. Um, that that has been a lot of families have a mixed Indian and Pakistani heritage in Britain, and for years this has been an issue, particularly in recent time under the current government. Getting a getting a visa if you've got any links to Pakistan has been difficult. Never forget, no Pakistani players are allowed to play in the in the in the Indian IPL, one of the world's richest competitions, and and it's not a law that they're not allowed to be played. It's just one of those things that just don't get picked to play in there. So that that's the India-Pakistan, uh, you know, historical conflict taking um, place on fields of cricket here. Yeah, of all the conflicts we talk about on the geopolitical issues that spread into sport, perhaps we 
focus on this one less, but it really does have some far-reaching implications. Yeah, that's amazing, that thing about the IPL and Pakistan players. Um, Maybe there's a sort of fear that they will get targeted and maybe, but when you think of the the, the money that's on offer to some of these players in the IPL, that's... uh, they're basically being excluded from a, a really big source of income. Yeah, and they're, they're also extremely talented players, and it'd be, um, you know, better a boon for the league itself to have some of those guys. You think about, you know, Shaheen, the fast bowler, there, for example, he's one of the best in the world. He, any other team would would jump to to get him, but but politics, politics, I guess. Well, they've got a few years to try to resolve their differences, although they've been going on for decades, particularly if India are going to host the Olympics with the IOC seemingly determined to try to take the games there. Of course, the host city is all tied up for now until 2032 for the Summer Games. Here's a teaser to get to later. The IOC this week highlighted that the Olympic podium was first used at the 1932 Winter Games, but it's been called out. Apparently, the Olympics didn't invent the podium. Have a think. We'll say later who did. Some quick bits of other news. Andrei Shevchenko is the new Ukrainian FA president. Well, he uh, he's going to have a busy time, isn't it? Um, because things are sort of brewing up on the on the football front. They're going to have World Cup qualifiers coming up, um, and issues around Russia are not going to go away. No, and uh, we mentioned last week, Rob, Andres Villas Boas trying to become the Porto president. It's um, you know it kind of ages us a bit when the players that we used to know as football players have gone on from players to management and now becoming presidents, aren't they? That's two in two weeks, Rob. Yeah, and he's also got all the challenges around Russia's potential reintegration at some point into football. UEFA attempted it last year. And then, of course, they had to perform the U-turn, didn't they? But perhaps why? that's one of the reasons still there is a lot of discontent facing Alexander Sheffrin, isn't it? Of course, last year, that UEFA Exco decision opposed by so many. There's a lot of concern as well for UEFA support for Luis Rubiales. He was thanked for his service, despite being forced to resign after that non-consensual kiss at the Women's World Cup final on Jenny Hermoso. Also this week, news that uh, Rubiales will be standing trial for sexual assault over that in Spain. But it's Alexander Sheffrin's potential attempt to stay as UEFA president longer than 12 years that's caused the sudden resignation of his chief football officer, Zvonimir Boban, this week. That resignation comes as a result of those attempts to change the statutes. Rob, you mentioned that. It's a a 12-year term limit maximum for people on the executive committee and, um, and also the president. We've talked about this and why... It's a bad look, given why these term limits came in against the spirit of changes in football after the major FIFA scandal in 2015. Martin, what did you think of it? I mean, just for people who don't know much about Boban's role and his sort of close connections with, with Alexander Sheffrin, so he was he was the head chief of football for UEFA. He was also the guy who, during the European Super League crisis, uh, he and Sheffrin shared a sort of lengthy eight-hour car journey um, into UEFA's headquarters uh, from Slovenia, Croatia, uh, to, to to get back to UEFA's headquarters to deal with it, the, the Super League crisis. So these are like people who are very, very close. And suddenly um, Boban 
caused, I think, such shockwaves by this very sort of abrupt and quite sort of um, uh, strongly worded resignation letter uh, and statement. So I think this was you know, really quite a big thing. Strongly worded. And should we, should we look at some of those words quickly? Um, just reading some of it now. Um, despite having expressed my deepest concern and total disapproval, the UEFA president does not consider there to be any legal issues with the proposed changes, let alone any moral or ethical ones. And he intends to move forward regardless in pursuit of his personal aspirations. And that's Boban about these statutes. It doesn't leave any, any room for doubt about what he's feeling there, does he? Of course, it's not the first time Boban has left a governing body. He was close to Gianni Infantino right at the start of his presidency in 2016 at FIFA. Then he left, went to AC Milan, had some sort of fallout with Ivan Gazidis when he was CEO, then switched sides from FIFA to UEFA. Very much switching sides because Sheffield and UEFA are often opposed on key decisions. So he's left after three years, but I suppose we've got used to Boban leaving, walking out. How big a thing actually is this? I think he's a guy who has very strong opinions. I mean, he, def- he definitely has very strong opinions. On, you know, but if you speak to him about you know, rules of football, I mean, he's you know, he it's no, it's, there's no uh, not many grey areas, are there? There's lot. It's very black and very white, and um, quite, so quite a spiky I, personality, Martin. Yeah, spiky personality, and sort of I don't know. Maybe if you've been captain of your country as a football player, you're sort of I mean, you know, he's an absolute hero in Croatia. You know, to go, when he was the captain of the team, got them to the um, third place in the 1998 World Cup, a lot of which I covered. I covered a lot of those Croatia matches there. And um, he really was an absolute hero to his country, not just because of that, but, you know, what he did during the breakup of Yugoslavia. Um, he became a sort of national hero for... Um, there was a sort of a thing that happened on a on a football pitch where he's clashed with a Serbian policeman to defending some of his teammates. So this he is somebody who is used in his own country at least to being you know, eulogised. So maybe that's led to this sort of his quite you know, sharp personality and and perhaps a, being used to often getting his own way. Some have floated that he could try to seek the way for presidency himself in 2027? Well, I mean, why not? You know, he's, he's had very senior positions in FIFA and UEFA and, you know, he's somebody who's got a vision for for football. So, it, why, you know, why not? But whether he would run against Sheffield, I don't know. But maybe he felt that he should be the, you know, the, the heir apparent and was unhappy at the prospect of he might have to wait a, you know, another four years. So on these term limits, so what happened is we've covered it in the pod in the past before. In 2015, after the wave of scandals that brought down Set Blatter, then eventually Michel Platini, he was the uh, presumed future FIFA president, they brought in term limits of three terms or 12 years. Then subsequently, following that, all sorts of questions about whether or not it should only be three complete terms or 12 years maximum. We have Sheffron's interview with Nick Ames in The Guardian Observer this weekend to get Sheffron's viewpoint on the statute changes and their changes that 
he is introducing to try to potentially extend his term limit beyond 12 years. That will take him through to 2031, just as uh, Gianni Fantino has already secured from FIFA. This is quite complex, isn't it? Hopefully those still keeping up with us. So what Sheffrin is saying is that actually there's no need to uh, change the statutes because when they thought they did originally introduce term limits, actually the wording was so unclear, he claims that no term limits existed. So he's claiming to be doing this for all the right reasons. Okay, all right. Let's just let's just break that down a little bit and let's simplify even more. So UEFA does have, in the future then, these 12-year term limits. But what we're saying is it doesn't apply to people elected after a certain time. I think it was July 2017. Now, that only affects three people. So why don't those three people just publicly say... We're doing this to clarify this, and we won't stay on beyond 12 years. Then all of this kind of goes away, but no one is doing that. You mentioned a Nick Ames interview, other people have interviewed the UEFA president, and he's not said one way or the other whether he will, he will stand. And that means he could stay for 15 years, which is, I guess, against the spirit of reforms that he as UEFA president led in a way, like Gianni Infantino did as FIFA. Is there, is there anything wrong with what I've said there? No, I think that is the, the way out of this whole mess is that forget about all the, the statutes and the, what you know, which rule was passed and who it affects July 2017 or or not. Just say, I will leave after 12 years, which would be after Euro 2028. As things stand, if, if he left after his third term was up, because of the partial term, it would be 2027. So I think fair enough to do to do your full 12 years. And the same with Gianni Infantino and Thomas Bach. We've talked about that before, people urging him to stay on beyond his 12 years at the IOC. I think this is a perfect opportunity for all those leaders to make a statement and say, 12 years is long enough, we're going to abide by um, the, the reforms that were brought in. And a good friend, Graham Dunbar, in December highlighted all these issues with the Olympic movement and international football governing bodies, reflecting on how they emerged from public corruption crises and how they then introduced term limits to their presidents. But as he pointed out, they're all on track now to roll back the policies. And as he pointed out, limiting their presence to 12 years in office was an attempt to curb the power cliques and patronage that can let misconduct flourish. Yeah, and that, that is why they, they were brought in. I mean, very nice language there from Graham, so credit to him. But it, it is quite clear why you have term limits. You don't have this concentration of power and all the bits and pieces that, that follow uh, from there. But it's just kind of mad what we've got here, isn't it? Like small memories. Do you think also there's a question of this? We're all so shocked that Boban has resigned so publicly. It shouldn't really be that much of a shock that there is dissent. We've heard other people say they don't, they don't like this. What is it about football that none of these people can say it publicly? I don't think it's just football. I think it's sports, politics generally, isn't it? Um, yeah, but why? It's because, it's because people, you know, countries want to have something, you know, you know, a country wants to have the under-17 World Cup or another country wants to have the, you know, the women's under-21 Euros or the, you know, the Youth Olympics. Yeah, I think people realise if they're going to if they speak out of turn from a national federation point of view, then that might affect their chances because the you know whoever's running the show may sort of 
they, they fear anyway, that may drum up support against them getting those events. So it's, mm. I mean, that's always been the problem with you know, these international sporting federations, I think. And it's about their own positions domestically, these federation chiefs. If they can bring events to their country, it boosts their own standing domestically, bringing the major events there. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's all kind of vested interests and don't rock the boat. So is it time where we have some sort of external oversight? There was, there was some talk way back when that CONCACAF, for example, is going to have some independent members on its board. That's the, that's the body for North American football. That didn't happen. There are no independent voices on any of these boards as checks and balances, are there? Remember when uh, he died, we remembered how uh, Henry Kissinger was floated by uh, Seth Blatter, wasn't he, for such a position? Uh, floated yeah, for a position. A... I can't quite remember what, what that was. The Council, of, the Council of Wisdom, it was called. It was him and the yeah. uh, and the opera singer, Placido Placido <laughs> Dominguez. That was but it's, uh, oh, it's, that was one of Seth Blatter's better ideas, which unfortunately never happened. It would have been great if it had. Well, as for Sheffrin in this uh, interview, he says there is this clown from one of the federations who calls out the federations and media daily, whining, "This is a conspiracy." Yeah, I mean, that's hard language talking about you know, referring to somebody without naming them as a clown. I mean, uh, I, I think there is somebody who's been sort of rumoured about potentially running against him or running for the presidency, you know, not Boban, somebody else, which maybe that Could well be someone listening to our podcast. <laughs> maybe. Could well be. But, uh... There is one thing about this Boban resignation. While we're talking about it, and perhaps it was big on social media amongst journalists covering the world of UEFA, it didn't really cut through, did it? Now, it doesn't mean it's not important, but this was not headline news in any way in terms of back pages or television. But perhaps you often get that with some stories that they are the building block to something else, but they're not quite big enough to resonate. It, ne- it never is, Rob. You're right, but it never, I guess it never has been, but it has importance, doesn't it? Like you'd mentioned things like Super League and things like that that brought people to the street. But these are some of the main actors that either shape or govern the game and whether Super Leagues happen, that affects millions, millions of supporters around the world. So that's why the focus is there. So this might seem a little bit, you know, inside the bubble, but what's happening in there impacts this game that billions of people around the world follow and love. Interestingly, I did look to see what the the readership was like of the story on the Times website, and it was quite healthy actually, um, because in, you know, not sports politics stories, you know, inside the Olympics, that sort of things, not not don't always get the you know the 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 greatest number of people looking at the story, reading the story in depth. But actually, this 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 you know stood by its own and did well. Yeah. High caliber paywall reading uh, audience. <laughs> Clearly, been all those contenders for for the top jobs. But yeah. um, uh, Rob, just a last point on 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 this. Just thinking about it, we it, we're saying there's very little internal scrutiny at any of these organisations. If the media didn't look at this in any way, just imagine how much worse things could be potentially. If if no one is looking at any of this. You, you pretty much can do whatever you like, right? Because the light's just not on, is it? 
and naturally we focus on football a lot on this podcast and that reflects how they are the governing bodies that get a lot of the scrutiny and how many sports governing bodies don't have the constant eye of scrutiny that uh, we and other journalists uh, put on football. No, that's true. I mean, if you think back to CONCACAF during Jack Warner's time, it was only the sort of when the European journalists started looking at in detail at Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer, you know, talk, and Andrew Jennings, perhaps that actually CONCACAF came under scrutiny because I, you know, probably in the sort of first ten years of Jack Warner's presidency during the nineteen nineties, it basically was a sort of he had free reign to do what he wanted. Of course, Jack Warner brought down amongst a wave of corruption scandals. Then, of course, we had all the arrests at the Boralak, the FIFA hotel in Zurich in 2015. CONCACAF HQ raided many convictions led by the U.S. Department of Justice. But Tarek, you've been reporting with your New York Times colleagues in the United States that this isn't all resolved and perhaps the cases weren't as clear cut as they were imagined to be at the time. Well, they had been at the time. The problem is the law um, is a living, breathing thing, isn't it? Situations change. So with my colleague, Rebecca Ruiz, uh, we reported that the the convictions in the FIFA case, don't forget, that was huge, Rob. You know, I think you took the famous picture as well of the, the, the those guys being led out of the Borolak Hotel in, in Zurich, that luxury hotel, dawn raids being hidden in white sheets all around the world, and then and all the things that followed the fall of Blatter and Platini, etc. Um, and it's been it's been almost a decade. It's been that long since then. What was it? Eight, eight nine years since then. We've had um, several convictions. We had the, the former head of Comnable, the South American governing body, Juan Angel Naput, complete a term of um, more than five and a half years in jail. He's now back home in Paraguay. And now he is appealing his, to have his conviction vacated, as is um, Jose Marin from Brazil and Alfreda Howitt from Honduras, another man who was convicted, because um, there was a case last year um, involving two others who were sentenced in this case, and they were, were, were convicted, um, two TV executives, and they managed to have their, their cases thrown out based on uh, two separate Supreme Court rulings that effectively um, not to get all legal, so I'll be very basic, that said what they did can no longer be considered or is not a crime in the United States. So bribery and corruption involving foreign people and foreign companies, that might be an overreach for the long arm of American law. But it'd be a massive deal if the whole thing collapses, wouldn't it? Yep. That was always the issue sort of 20-odd years ago with the, after the collapse of the ISL marketing company, which led to the the first sort of wave of um, allegations of corruption and bribery involving FIFA, Zhao Havelange, the FIFA president until 1998, uh, in that in Switzerland, certainly at the time, bribery wasn't a crime. So uh, it'd be interesting if this the US are thinking, you know, because there's always been this thing, if, you, if, if bribes are paid in US dollars, then the US authorities can go for you wherever you are in the world. Yeah, and, and, and that's right. And Rob, uh, it's made kind of celebrities out of some of the people that were involved, not only the criminals, but there was um, Loretta Lynch, the former attorney general who, had, who led the DOJ's prosecution. Um, she's had a bit of a, a change of career since then. 
She's often been at FIFA, hasn't she, in more recent times? Yeah, she is um, a, a partner at uh, a law firm. Funny enough, this law firm is 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 acting for FIFA now in 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 the restitution case. That that's the money that was um, kind of seized from these people. Uh, they, the DOJ announced more than two hundred million dollars would be handed back to FIFA, Concacaf, and Comnibor. And Loretta Lynch, as you said, has appeared at FIFA conferences where, in many ways, has given the new FIFA under Gianni Infantino a clean bill of health, almost describing it as a kind of exemplar sports organisation since then. Um, you know, maybe I recommend maybe she listens to the pod. Maybe there's a few areas where FIFA could still improve. Well, particularly as so much of FIFA's time is spent in the US, they've got their Miami headquarters and, of course, the 2026 Men's World Cup. They could still have the 2027 Women's World Cup there as well because the bidding is underway. Of course, the 2026 tournament being co-hosted by the United States, Canada and Mexico. But all the focus on where is the final going to be for the 2026 World Cup? We are going to get an announcement in a week's time, uh, February the 4th. Yeah, I think they're going to announce the whole schedule, aren't they? Or most most of it there. Um, so we, I think we've mentioned this before, but I think it's interesting. What I think is, uh, what I've heard is that New York is the slight favourite, um, just because of the sort of iconic status of New York. You know, had backdrops of Statue of Liberty, all that sort of thing. Um, but on the other hand, the stadium isn't as good as others. For example, Dallas has this roof. It's climate-controlled inside. Texas has a, a, a fund for attracting big sports events. Um, and Los Angeles is making a, the Sophie stage, making a desperate last bit. I think it's still it's out of the running, almost certainly, but uh, making a last-ditch attempt to get back in by... has persuaded FIFA to um, ease some of the, the sort of regulations around... The space on the by ne- on next to the side of the pitch. Yeah, Martin. What, Rob, whatever the, this fund in Texas has to bring um, sports events to Dallas. I mean, this is the FIFA World Cup final. The FIFA aren't short of money. They're estimating eleven billion dollars for um, the World Cup in twenty twenty six in terms of revenues. You know, you can give up a few quid, and the idea after having this 48-team tournament, it's going to be enormous. The whole world will be watching. It's quite hard to look at, as a city, New York, not getting the World Cup final in that context, isn't it? If Dallas is the, is the, is the competitor, no, no offence to the people of Dallas and the city of Dallas, sure, it's lovely. But time zone-wise, New York, international city, what's the problem? Well, the heat could be a problem as well across the entire US by the time we reach uh, June, July 26 as well. I think that is a big problem, Rob, potentially because we saw even the thought the US Open tennis, it was really sort of serious heat problems there. And there's there's, there's no roof at all in in the the New York Giants stadium. Um, So that's, that's an issue. On the other hand... Um, that, is, that is an issue, but they surely would have played, Martin, a whole tournament with loads of games in New York then. Well, it's going to be an yeah. issue for the final. Surely it would be an issue for all those other games as well. Of course. So so I think that's why you, you, know, you hit the nail on the head, why that's probably still the favourite. 
I mean, the the Dallas Stadium, I mean, it's in Arlington, it's 20 miles outside of Dallas, that there's t- terrible public transport links. So everybody's going to have to be taking it on the coach, obviously not just for the um, not just for the final if it's there, but for whatever other matches. Um, I think Los Angeles, I mean, that is an amazing stadium, but they've got the Olympics at Los Angeles in 28. Um, the, the, the capacity is... is 10,000 less than the other two stadiums. I think that's probably a significant factor. But um, I think the whole thing's going to be interesting. How many how many quarterfinals will Mexico and Canada get? Because monetizing these matches, you, you make so much more money from a, a match in the USA than you do the match in Canada or Mexico. It'd be interesting to see how many quarterfinals they get. One to watch out there is the announcement prepares to come um, some news from manchester united uh that situation with the ineos partial takeover we've been following they have now appointed their chief executive omar barada a swoop from manchester city and one of the things that immediately gets talked about of course is well the pending manchester city financial case at the premier league barada's been there for many years although we have Nick Harris to thank for this of Sporting Intelligence, who's actually just launched on Substack after leaving the mail on Sunday. He said he's been through hundreds of pages of the documentation that in part relates to the financial case that has previously been through UA. Great news for Omar Barada there from Nick Harris. <laughs> so um, congratulations to Nick for launching his 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 Substack. But the um, yeah, with, with the case still ongoing, it is a maybe a curious. Um, appointment and but great news for for Omar Barada right running Manchester United doesn't really get much bigger than that It'd be interesting to see how how that pans out no amazing um, appointment for, for him I also uh, immediately searched through every did a, a word search through all the sort of documents that I had on my computer relating to the uh, the, the, the pending Manchester City case and I looked through all the screenshots of all the Der Spiegel leaks and all the all the written reasons that we've had from the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, and yeah, his name doesn't come up anywhere. So, and I, I did also ask the question of, of his um, people connected to him, um, if they were worried about that. And they said Manchester United done their due diligence on that front. So there we go. Do you think they would have spoken to the Premier League as well? Now we have a a date in mind or is that that process so under lock and key that they wouldn't be allowed to do anything like that when it comes to due diligence? Mm, Good question. And in terms of that date, it was revealed at a parliamentary hearing in Westminster that there now has been a date settled. But the MPs aren't happy, are they, with uh, what Richard Masters had to tell them, the Premier League Chief Executive? There is a little bit of a sort of publicity seeking from the select committee. I mean, there always is, but that's their job, I guess, isn't it? But yeah, so they've written a letter to Richard Masters, one saying they're sort of raising questions about this issue of the Premier League having suggested a sanction to the independent commission who were dealing with the Everton financial breach, um, which the commission then sort of ignored. Um, But there's questions around, around that. And then also a sort of slightly strange one about 
did Richard Masters, what did he mean by referring to Everton and Nottingham Forest as small clubs when obviously they've historically they've been very successful? And they're just moving on to something quickly. I, I had a coffee with David Hellier from Bloomberg after our last pod and we were talking about the Glazer the Glazer sale and the Ratcliffe takeover. And I, I, I said that what a great deal it was for the Glazers. This was Jim Ratcliffe spending about 1.5 mil, uh, billion to take 25% control of, of Manchester United, about the same as the Glazers had paid for the entire club, you know, with the debt and you know debt funded takeover. And David said, "What a great deal it is for um, Jim Ratcliffe, a lifelong Manchester United fan, gets to control the club he likes, a man in his 70s, and he does that for a billion. So there you are, an alternative take on this." Always good to get any takes. Message us at Sport Unlocked on X, Facebook and Instagram, sportunlockpod at gmail.com. Well, that's the world of football as we close up a couple of issues in that very complex and challenging area of transgender eligibility. And first of all, at the Court of Arbitration for Sport, one case is heading the transgender swimmer Leah Thomas, who is trying to overturn the rules that effectively will stop her competing at the Olympics. Yeah, we've, we've, we've covered Leah Thomas's case in, in some depth, haven't we? Um, she's probably the, the, the highest profile transgender elite athlete um, in the world, probably. Um, broke all sorts of, sort of swimming records uh, when she was at college in, in the USA, but also provoked an absolute sort of furore and I think directly led to World Swimming bringing in a effective ban on people who'd gone through puberty as a, a male puberty and then um, transitioning to becoming women, seeing that they couldn't take part in, in women's competition um, because of the sort of inbuilt physical advantages. That's what she is challenging it at CAS. And we had um, Sharon Davis on when, when the Leah Thomas first kind of emerged on the scene and became one of the best. Uh, college swimmers um and and that was in contrast to her life before that when um when competing uh in in the male swimming events she was kind of mediocre um and and that's and that and that's where where we are now uh with, with this there's going to be um a huge amount of comment back and forth isn't there with with this and, and other and other um cases uh, where are we more generally with with the Olympics and the IOC? Is it is it a sport by sport thing still with Paris um, just around the corner now? Yeah, absolutely. With um, swimming saying, well, this won't be the Olympics, but there'll be an open category in future for uh, transgender athletes to be able to compete in. Um, obviously, we've seen athletics completely ban anyone who's gone through male puberty from female events and. You know, this will be one of the, the issues in the build-up to uh, to the Paris Games. We had another moment in the last couple of weeks or so. I started this week by interviewing Hayley Davidson, a transgender golfer who won a women's pro tour event in the United States. She's born in Scotland, won this NXXT Women's Classic in Florida. And she was told after winning it after quite a backlash that she'd have to undergo checks on her testosterone levels and other players would be polled in terms of her participation. She did insist to me that uh, she has no 
advantages having been born a man, but she does think in the past she did. But now, you know, she's she's transitioned. She doesn't think she has those advantages anymore. It's a bit strange from the organisers saying, can you do this after the fact, though, isn't it? Like, had she not placed and not won, would any of this happen? It just it seems um, kind of unfair after the event, doesn't it? Like, have have the rules in place, and if she's abided by those, she gets the prize money, surely. Does seem a response to a lot of headlines. Yeah, I mean, the rules are in place, but I mean, I think the question is, are the rules correct, which is why they're carrying out the survey. But yeah, it is very much a sort of reactive response to to criticism and perhaps they should have addressed this before it reached this point. But um, I mean, she said that she's happy to take the test, isn't she? Well, we started this pod with a bit of a teaser. The RSC tweeting out that the Olympic podium is an Olympic icon. Did you know it was first used at the Olympic Winter Games, Lake Placid, 1932? I didn't know, but then spotted intervention from the Olympic historian Bill Mallon, who said, actually, it wasn't used then. Do we know where they got the idea from, Lake Placid? Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't know, but because I, I saw that as well. Uh, it was 1932 years before, but it was the, what is was then called the British Empire Games. Um, and you know, what a shame we still don't have the British Empire Games. They, yeah, they, they then great. became the Commonwealth mm-hmm. Games, uh, and whether whether we're going to have any Commonwealth Games or not, that was a joke about the British Empire Games, by the way. Just in case everyone thinks there is happened. no British Empire anymore. No, exactly. <laughs> Uh, it's okay, yeah. Martin. You can feel confident to air your, your, your thoughts on the pod. It's a, it's a safe space. <laughs> Having touched on India and Pakistan as well uh, and their geopolitical issues and now mentioning the British Empire's legacy. Getting very political. Where was well, that? that anyway? Canada. Right? I think it was Canada. Canada, 1930. That's when they use it. The- Hamilton, Ontario. Oh, there you go. Well, <laughs> we should, though, mention before closing, it has been a pretty exciting week of football as well. The African Cup of Nations. Full of shocks, full of surprises. What an event. Fantastic tournament. It's, a, it's been the best it's been in for as long as I can remember. Shock, shock results, shock departures. Ivory Coast, the host, should well and truly be out, saved by res- other results going their way, sacking their manager after the, after the group stages. I don't think I've ever seen that in a tournament, certainly not with a host. So Ivory Coast just about scraped through to, to the knockouts. By the time the listeners um, get to download this pod, I'm not sure whether they're still going to be in the tournament. But yeah, what an what a incredible, incredible event. Well, that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sports Unlocked. As ever, if you hit subscribe, you land in your feeds automatically. But for now, thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>